This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who left her heart in San Francisco along with my Fitbit and three pairs of AirPods. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I am honored to have London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco. She's been one of the most visible local leaders during the coronavirus crisis because San Francisco seems to be flattening the curve in a way that other cities have not. We'll talk about why that is, what long-term recovery looks like, and how the tech community can be part of the solution. Mayor Breed, who I've interviewed before, welcome back to Recode Decode. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am thrilled that you're here. And just so you know, Mayor Breed is drinking green juice and and, <laughs> uh, and trying to keep healthy. But let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing. You've been getting a lot of kudos for very early. I want to sort of get into your mind of what you, how you decided to do what you did. Well, I think um, early on in December, this was brought to my attention um, at that how, time, how? I don't Can think... You give, us the, give us the TikTok, because I'd love okay. to know. So in early December, um, the Department of Emergency Management, the Department of Public Health, we were having conversations about what was happening in Wuhan with a, a, an outbreak of the coronavirus and what that could potentially mean if we had a similar outbreak and we started to have conversations around San Francisco and, and whether or not it could reach San Francisco. And I think that... It probably started here early, the conversations, because we have a large uh, Chinese population and people who are still connected to family members throughout China and in particular Wuhan. And so it was put on our radar. We were monitoring the situation very closely. And in January, we activated our emergency operations center. And we did that because we started to see, um, of course, a surge in places like all over China, and Mm -hmm. then things started to somewhat take off in Italy, and other places started to uh, diagnose other cases. So we were, of course, very concerned. We were preparing the city, and we had to really uh, understand whether or not uh, people who were in Wuhan or in other places that were infected, they were probably coming back to San Francisco. So we had to act quickly. We so had to be me, prepared. Let me, for people who don't understand how cities are, why do you pay, how do you pay attention to this? I mean, there must this must happen all the time. Is that correct? Or how do you decide which one is important? Well, um, it happens. We're given information. Uh, we're given information sometimes from the federal government, sometimes from national entities. We have a Department of Emergency Management Uh, They facilitate all emergencies, whether they are foreseen or not. So, for example, 
uh, a terrorist attack uh, that could be possible in San Francisco, a earthquake that happens unexpectedly. Uh, so we do simulations to prepare for emergencies on a regular basis, and it has more to do with our close contact with uh, federal and state agencies, um, mm -hmm. making us aware of things, different uh, organizations like uh, the World Health Organization and others. So uh, we get updates and information on things happening all over the world on a regular right. basis. And so this was one that we paid close attention to, again, because of our large uh, Chinese population here and the ties that people still have to their family members and, and visits that take place uh, to certain regions. Right, but others didn't pay as much attention. So I, I want to get sort of what goes in your head when you decide what to focus on. So what goes on in my head, I, 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 first of all, <laughs> I have a lot of department heads who bring a lot of things to my attention. And I will tell you that probably in January when we activated the Emergency Operations Center to pay very close attention to this, um, we were concerned about ramping up. Uh, and, and so that was the first sign that I knew that this was going to potentially be a real problem for us. Even though we were monitoring it, we knew it was getting out of control in other places. But when I had the Department of Public Health Director, the Department of Emergency Management, sit down with me and specifically, I said, well, why are we activating the Emergency Operations Center to prepare? Explain to me step by step. The explanation is what really, like, basically set off a light bulb in my head. We, they basically said that if this were to happen in San Francisco, we would not have enough beds, we would not have enough medical support, we would not be able to uh, contain it or to stop the impacts of the virus and the number of deaths would surge out of control. And I said, what do you mean? We have UCSF, we have CPMC, we have Kaiser, we have General Hospital, we we are like the research institution of the world that everyone looks at. I mean, we. We are renowned for our research, for the work we've done around the AIDS crisis, our medical teams and brain surgeries and all these incredible things, biotechnology, everything. What do you mean we don't have enough? And so when they started to explain exactly what this means in terms of ICUs, in terms of respirators and how to care for patients and how this stuff works, not only in San Francisco, but throughout the country, then that really you know, basically forced me to pay even more attention to what was going on and the need to take action and the need to try and help the people of San Francisco understand how significant this really is. One of the things in other parts of the Bay Area were doing that also, uh, down in San Mateo and all, all kinds of areas were super paying attention, large, again, because of the Asian population there, the large Asian population. Um, had you been looking at Seattle? Is, was that part of the equation? Because that's where it really first started to strike. Well, yeah, as soon as uh, that occurred, we definitely were paying close attention um, to what was happening there. You know, the connection, there's there's more of a direct connection to China and different uh, regions in China than there is maybe to Seattle as it relates to San Francisco. But that was very close to home because it was just, you know, right over, you know, very close on the West Coast. So we definitely were keeping a close eye on that. But a lot of what factored into our decision had everything uh, to do with uh, our concern for public health and being able to 
um, identify if someone was infected and, and identify that quickly and identify everyone around that person. Uh, contact tracing is something we have been doing and now is becoming a bigger thing as we look at how we move forward and how uh, we began to uh, reopen what that means for everyone. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a second. But so one of the things when you're starting this, you have to coordinate with other mayors in the area, um, you know, other mayors, other other public officials. Talk a little bit about how that works, because San Francisco is a very small, even though it's a small city, a relatively small city, it's connected to the whole Bay Area. Um, something you have to cooperate with BART, you have to cooperate with all kinds of things. So I, I think part of, uh, again, our early on conversations were more um, within San Francisco, but our our county health officers uh, here in San Francisco and other uh, Bay Area counties were in constant conversations about what was going on. They they were paying very close attention and making recommendations to us um, as leaders of what to do uh, as we move forward. So a lot of the information were, was being coordinated through our county health officers. And um, that information is what myself and other mayors talked about and what this could mean um, for our cities. Uh, and in fact, San Francisco is a city and a county, whereas Oakland and San Jose and others, they're part of other counties. And I basically was getting a lot of information a lot faster than some of the other mayors. And my, uh, you know, I, I shared this information with them as quickly as I received it as a way for us to um, coordinate our responses and how we communicate with the public. Um, and how we really make sure that we show a joint effort because San Francisco could not do this alone. No, because you mean Oakland, it's people come in from Oakland, from Berkeley, yes, from everywhere, from, 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 everywhere. from down south, from north, yes. from Marin County. Yes. So it's much more coordinated. It has to be a much more coordinated approach. So when you decided to shut down, it was really early. It was it was it was at the earliest or one of the earliest in this country. Correct. Well, Talk it was it was the first from my understanding. Yeah, um, we first. started off um, February 25th when we mm -hmm. declared a state of emergency. And right. Which was the first I, the first time I heard it because I was in New York and I'm like, oh, wow. Wow, that's interesting. And no, but no other city was doing that. No, we, we were the first city to declare a state of emergency, but we also didn't have any cases in San Francisco at the time when we first declared the state of emergency, mm -hmm. because at that time we knew it was definitely going to hit our city. It wasn't even a question. And we also knew that we weren't able to move as quickly as we needed to get ready for that, to increase our hospital capacity, to address what we think could be seriously problematic. Um, so we declared a state of emergency, and then over time, um, the county health officers started to make recommendations about the number of events, large-scale events, and other things that should not be happening. So they brought those things to our attention, so then I started to limit uh, large-scale events. First, we went down to 1,000, then there were other recommended numbers, and I honestly will tell you, I got frustrated by those recommended numbers because I felt like they were arbitrary. Why are we just recommending numbers because the fact is, we want to, uh, you know, basically Eliminate prevent people them. from connecting to one another in this way. We should not be having any events. Right. Uh, we were getting people ready. And so when we first started to, you know, talk about reducing them to no more than a thousand people, people started really paying attention. Already in, 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 in many of our Chinese community, especially in Chinatown and places, they were already paying attention because they were being hit the hardest, their businesses, uh, you know, there was some real financial challenges there, but 
in other parts of the city, I think when I started to limit the number uh, of events and the large scale events, and we started to talk about what people should be prepared for, I think folks started to really get the message that, wait a minute, this is more serious than we probably thought it was. Uh, and so I really wanted to get a, probably a little bit more aggressive, more so because I just felt like what difference does a thousand person event make? Because that's the possibility of uh, there being a yeah, 999. Yeah. What's the yeah, difference? So, what, so what, what's the political pressure that's brought to bear when you're too early? Because one yeah, of the, one of the I, things I remember, like everyone's like, oh, we're not in New York. We're not going to do that. You know, that's not where we're going. Well, there was definitely I know small businesses and, and our hotels and our, our restaurants and so many people were very concerned. I mean, already uh, Chinatown and Chinese businesses were suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they they just thought that this declaration of emergency would kill their business. And, and unfortunately, um, that was definitely a reality and, and something that I had to consider um, what it would do to tourism, what it would do to our economy as a whole. Uh, but I felt like, unfortunately, what choice do we have? I mean, public health has to be a priority. If you have people dying on a regular basis and scared to come here anyway, what difference is it going to make? Um, so it was really about, unfortunately, making the hard decision to put San Francisco in that place where people will then not come here, where businesses will suffer, where our economy will just uh, be in a really terrible place. And there was definitely pushback. And unfortunately, I, I felt like I had no choice. I had to do what was in the best interest of public health because people's lives were at stake. I mean, all I can think about is what if, you know, because my grandmother raised me and um, my grandmother, I, I was thinking, well, what if my grandmother, who was in a very vulnerable population, what if all of a sudden she got sick and I showed up to the hospital and they turned us away? because they didn't have enough beds. And that's all I can think about for people who have elderly parents and folks who are, we were, we were heading down a path of being in that sort of situation. So that was really what was going on in my head as I was making these decisions. And I had to do what I felt was the right thing to do. Talk about working with the city council. Now, people don't realize in San Francisco, they have a lot more power than mayors. You have power as a mayor, but there's a lot of shared power. How do you negotiate that? Yeah. And so here in San Francisco, we don't have a city council. We have the board of supervisors. Uh, I'm sorry, the board of supervisors. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> of and, course, uh, I live there. I know this. I have. Yeah. A... <laughs> yeah. So people always find that interesting because we yeah. don't have a city council. We have the board of supervisors. They're the legislative branch for the city. I served previously on the board of supervisors. Uh, and so uh, based on, like, for example, the number of votes that they put together, if it's more than eight, then that basically overrides my veto power as mayor. Um, but for the most part, um, they I, I've been working very closely with many of them to uh, propose policies um, that have been very helpful. And so oftentimes when we have disagreements, that's kind of highlighted more than some of the great work we've been able to do together um, but uh, this has been really tough for all of us uh, because, again, this is something that not only uh, can impact the people of our city that we represent, it can impact us at any given time. So when doing this work, we have to also be mindful of that. So we have to be strategic in how we work together. We want to save the world. Of course, we want to do everything for everybody. But we also have to realize that it's a lot more difficult to implement the kinds of things that we traditionally would want to implement because we have to exercise social distancing 
when we are doing our jobs now. So the, the work that we do, for example, with a homeless is not as simple as it was. And just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean that, for example, the behavioral health issues, the substance use challenges that they all deal with, that doesn't just go away because we're in a pandemic. In fact, it, it's even worse uh, because of the challenges of getting them to comply with the order and also making sure that you as a nonprofit worker who's working in a shelter or working with this population as a social worker, you also have to maintain your distance while trying to help someone right, right. who I can't get, comply. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I want to get into the homeless separately in a second. But working with this city, with the Board of Supervisors, you've all, when you were declaring these things, you have a certain level of power that you don't have as much as other mayors. How do you, how did you navigate that? Well, actually, I will say that um, I think in comparison to other mayors, like, for example, um, uh, because, again, we're a city and a county, um, and, you know, the mayor of Oakland, in terms of being, uh, we, we basically, through the emergency declaration, and through my directive, I was able to put a moratorium on residential evictions like right away. Uh, but unfortunately, the mayor of Oakland had to go through a different process with her city council and it took longer. So um, what happens when I issue a declaration of emergency, it also has to be, um, uh, I could do it immediately and start to exercise my authority, but then it also has to be approved by the board of supervisors. So. Uh, and then as I make amendments to that order, it has to be approved. So um, that's really kind of the checks and balances of how this stuff works. And for the most part, it's been supported. Absolutely. So when you then you moved from the, the state of emergency to shuttering in place, which was also very early. People were slower in other cities and municipalities to do that. Talk about that. And then I want to get into some of the things you're doing now to mitigate what's happened yeah. um, and why you think you have a flatter curve. So one of the earliest things you did was keeping people in their homes, which was at the time a dramatic thing to do. Yeah. So we were already uh, limiting the events. We, right. uh, you know, the schools were shutting down. Um, we asked the vulnerable populations to stay in. We told people to prepare for school closures and uh, to get your medications. And, and we were already doing a lot of things. And I think the Friday before the Monday that I de uh, mm -hmm. uh, declared the shelter in place, I had to talk with our Department of Public Health Director, Dr. Grant Colfax, about what was going on. And we were looking at charts and looking at data and looking at the challenges. And I remember this clearly where I said, well, why don't we just, we're already pretty much there. Why don't we just do a stay at home order uh, and we talked specifically about what that would look like. And he said, yes, we're headed in that direction. I said, well, we need to head. I, I basically yeah. said that. Put on the gas. We need to do that like yesterday. And so right. then there was a, um, I remember this on Sunday, I got the call late Sunday that the county health officers had decided that this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would announce it the next day. And, and I basically uh, said, OK, well, I'm going to announce it tomorrow. Like, I'm going to announce it tomorrow. They wanted to announce it. And I said, you have to work with the mayors on announcing this because uh, people don't know who the county health officers are. And we need to do this as a partner uh, so that people understand that this is your city elected leaders who are held accountable to all of these decisions, to implementing all these decisions. And um, it's our public health professionals who have this strong recommendation. And so I immediately notified all the mayors uh, of the 13 largest cities to tell them this was happening. It moved pretty fast. 
They want some people wanted to hold off and slow down. I said, no, we can't slow down. We need to do this. We, we should have already done this, but we need to do this now because look at Santa Clara County. It's it's getting out of control, and we don't want that to happen in 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 our cities in our counties. Right. So we need to move faster. And so this this is basically what happened and announcement happened on Monday and we move forward. We move forward. I know I heard the criticism, but I didn't care. I was like, that's a ridiculous, the timing thing was very important to what you did. How did citizens react? What? Did, how do you think when you By that, that time, they were fine with it. They were uh, fine, they, yeah. they, they were fine with it. They, they, I think they knew it was coming because of everything we were doing before. I mean, we were like, prepare for this, prepare for disruptions in service, prepare, work at home and Companies were already telling people to work at home. Conventions were being canceled. Events were being canceled. Things were changing. And also, I think that people who realized that it was important to stay at home were already doing it for the most part, especially people in vulnerable populations. Right. Absolutely. All right. When we get back, we're, we're talking with San Francisco Mayor London Breed, who was one of the earliest to start to put uh, strictures in place around coronavirus, which has led to a very flat curve in San Francisco. When we get back, we're going to talk about that and what she thinks has worked and isn't working and what we're going to do to get the economy back and open up the economy when we return. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Um, Mayor Breed, one of the things when you did a lot of this early, I know a lot of other municipalities, including the president, didn't want it, didn't talk about it like it was serious. How did you look at that? Because you were the you were you and others in California and Mayor uh, Governor Newsom were early to this. How do you look at the impact of that? I mean, it's obvious in the numbers that California is doing a lot better. Well, I think. Um it, it probably has a lot to do with our history. Um, we are on the on the West Coast, and in particular in San Francisco. Um, you probably remember during the AIDS crisis uh, mm-hmm. that hit San Francisco really hard. Uh, the public health professionals here in San Francisco led the way, led the charge. The federal government was absent and didn't want to support our efforts in any way. We were almost left alone to manage this public health crisis here in the city. And we emerged um, really as a model uh, for addressing um, HIV AIDS and and, and the gains that we've made and and how far we've come to the point where even last year we've had less than 200 uh, new patients diagnosed with HIV, which is absolutely incredible. Um, And so we've come a long way. But we, we knew, I think, that 
we had to do what we had to do for ourselves. And we would probably um, need to focus on making sure that we're coming together here in, in California uh, and we're taking care of one another. And we weren't certain that we were going to be able to uh, count on the federal government and because we've we've been there before. The AIDS crisis was a, not just a tragedy, but an appalling behavior on the part of the federal government at the time. Um, in this case, this affects everyone across the country. And I, not that they shouldn't have been paying attention to AIDS, they absolutely should have, but what, were you surprised by the lack of interest in dealing with it by the government, the federal government? I, I would say that I, I, I want to just, you know, appreciate the work of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and how hard she and Senator Kamala Harris and others are working to fight for support um, and to take this uh, pandemic seriously. Um, but we also need to talk about the realities of what we're dealing with with our president. And it's been really challenging to have uh, someone who in office who you can't trust, uh, who provides inaccurate information, uh, who uh, is just very challenging to believe when dealing with like what is a world pandemic and it is what it is. We can't dwell on that because we we know who he is. We can't control what he does or what he says. We mm -hmm. can only focus on what we're able to do. And I think that's really like I was never going to rely on the federal government to help us through this because sadly, um, it's it's been already challenging for our city financially with this president. And I am just hopeful that uh, between our governor and the work that we're trying to do here and some of the work that Congress is trying to do around stimulus, that that's gonna lead to some sort of help uh, for the people of this city and this entire country, uh, because we are truly all in this together and we can't keep letting the president be a distraction to this. We just have to work around that. When he was sort of downplaying it and you were not downplaying it, what does that feel like? I mean, I know there was a lot of Californians overreacting, over-dramatizing, over this. Did you just ignore it completely? I just ignore it. I mean, I've, I've learned to do that a long time ago um, with with him, unfortunately. He was attacking San Francisco for homelessness. For, you yeah, had that he, whole we always get attacked, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's... It's, I notice he's not praising you now for the flattened curve. I don't know. That's yeah, not happening. And that's okay. I mean, because I don't, I, I definitely don't do this work for praise. I, I, at the end of the day, I want people to say the mayor of San Francisco overreacted and everything was better than we thought it was going to be. Right, right. That's what right. I want to happen. So what do you, let's talk about, let's stop talking about Trump because he's useless. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you think worked. What do you think worked and what do you think has to work now? What do you think the critical elements so I, are? What I think worked is that um, part of how we communicated the messaging, we were from day one when I got out there in a press conference and talked about the coronavirus and what was happening and what might be coming. When we started to talk about it, we made it clear to the public that every time we know something, we will let the public know as soon as we can confirm the information. It was important for us to be very, very honest with reality, like what is going on, even if it's uncomfortable for people to hear, and then also to talk about recommendations of what we can do about it. Um, so we had been doing that from day one, and I think people really appreciate that. Um, so for example, uh, the day before the schools were closed, we had a press conference with the superintendent and other school board members, 
to say that we're going to, this is why, even though I had basically said no events over a thousand except essential stuff, which was like schools, um, and we got together to say, look, these are some of the reasons why we think we need to keep the schools open, which includes meals for kids. They're not a part of the vulnerable population. Um, we don't want kids to miss out on their education because some kids may not have access to a computer or the internet. So we were we expressed those concerns. And then the next day, the decision based on some new cases and some things that emerged to close the schools. And the reason why that was the right decision, because part of it, unfortunately, was to protect the health of not only the kids, but the teachers and the workers and everyone else. And so we had to make a change and we had to explain to the public why we went in a different direction the very next day because this is an evolving situation. This is like nothing we in our lifetimes have ever experienced before. So what that requires is everyone being open to change. We may say that we need to do one thing today and depending on data or something may shift that gives us an indication that this is not the right move. And because of public health, we have to make a shift. And so I think we've made that clear. So people have been very um, open to that and very understanding as long as we communicate. And I think that is so critical to make sure that we're getting the facts out there and we're providing solutions and we're making recommendations. And 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 that's really, I think, what has helped us uh, a lot. Is that to, they know what you're doing. They know what you're yes. doing. So, one, social distancing early, keeping people at home early, closing schools early. Um, what other things do you think has worked for the city? Um, I think those are the main things uh, that people are taking. The, the people who are not, it's not 100% compliance right. in San Francisco right. by no means. No. <laughs> I but, it. for example, when we had one weekend, it was really nice and everybody was at the beach. Everybody was yeah. in the parks. Yeah. You know, the, the next day I had to get on the, uh, I showed up at a press conference and I basically said, look, we're, this can't happen or I'm going to close the parks. Right. So we immediately closed all the parking lots. We immediately put in certain systems into play. We know you need to go outside and get fresh air. And we had to explain to people what we expect because we want you to stay at home as much as possible. And we want to leave the parks open. We want to leave, we, we need to leave the grocery stores open. There are things we need to do. But if you go out and you don't socially distance yourself, what's the whole point of why we're doing right. this? Right, right. So right. we don't want to be put in a situation where we're we're closing the parks. Don't drive to the beach. Don't drive to a park that's not in your neighborhood. Get out. Get some fresh air. If you need to walk somewhere, but maintain social distancing. So I think, I think communication has of what to do and what not to do has played the the most critical role, and and people taking it seriously. I don't I don't know what else could have, you know. And and also I think seeing what's happening in New York. I mean, it's one thing to see what happens in Italy because you think, okay, that's far removed in China and Italy. But right here in the United States, in New York, I think that has also played a role in, yeah, in getting people to, to comply. They didn't, they social, didn't social distance. So what else works from your perspective? Is just, it, just information and constantly changing. That's one thing. Is there things that you're looking at now that you think will help mitigate what's going on? Obviously, everyone's getting... My brother happens to be a doctor at CPMC in the in the emergency room, and he said he was he said I have to give it to uh, Mayor Breed because we, I was expecting the absolute worst, and it's been 
manageable, like they, the, the, the case, and in fact, more than manageable. And he was sort of just waiting for disaster and a nightmare situation. And he, of course, is on the, we just got to keep doing this for a very long time. That's really pretty much his, his message to me. From your perspective, is that what has to happen? It has to just last into for a certain amount of time? Well, I think that, you know, everything, every decision that we've made has a lot to do with the data, with the facts, with right. our healthcare professionals who are monitoring the situation. And I will uh, take their advice on what to do next. And I think that our goal, of course, is to prepare uh, for what, you know, the future looks like after the coronavirus. We don't want to jump ahead of ourselves and think, okay, we're doing great, and then reopen the city and then have a surge and it get out of control. Uh, that's what happened in San Francisco in 1918 during the Spanish flu, when in September it really, you know, I mean, first of all, I think it's somewhere around 50 million people worldwide were died from the Spanish flu. And in San Francisco, we started early as soon as it hit. We closed down the city. We closed churches. We closed schools. I mean, this is almost 100 years ago, right? And then November, we thought, okay, there's no more deaths. We're coming out of this. Everyone threw off their masks. Everyone partied. And a couple of days later, a lot more people died. Things started to spike again. And all of the work that had been done you know, we, they basically, it was, it was almost for nothing because, you know, it got worse. And I, I just think we got to be careful about that. But we also know that we need to get the city open. We need to go back uh, to work and, and, and other things, but we have to do so when it's safe. And I think contract tracing, as well as more testing and resources are going to play a role in helping us get there. Uh, but I just think that it's it just like we relied on health experts to guide us into this situation um, where we're able to to flatten the curve in some in some regards. We're going to rely on them to help us transition out of this as we prepare to recover. So where are you on testing? Because, I, you know, I just wrote a column in The New York Times about I, I took an antibody test. I thought I had had uh, COVID-19. Um, I didn't as it, well, according to this test and the tests aren't very good. Where are you all on t- how important do you think is testing? Cause that's one way of mitigating the situation oh, by te- allowing. Testing is critical because when you talk about contract tracing, because right now we're only testing people who exhibit symptoms. Right. And we have an app even, and we've been working and getting city employees and others and people who don't have insurance. We're going to test anyone who exhibits symptoms here in the city as much as we possibly can. But what will also help us if we increase our capacity, people who have been in contact, and this is where contact tracing comes in, people who have been in contact with those who test positive, we need to be able to track them down, test them, and rule them out, right? Um, So that's really how we get to a place where we can uh, really start to identify who is infected so that we can get them in quarantine, so that we can keep them away from other folks because there are a lot of folks out there who don't even exhibit any symptoms who are positive and they can basically infect somebody else. Which so, means everybody should be tested, right? It that, would that be suggests- nice. <laughs> it, yeah. would, it would be very nice if that were the case. And so I think the shortage of, of, of test kits and that particular challenge is, is significant. And 
Uh, I hope that we get to a better place. I know here, again, UCSF and the resources that they have have been incredible. They've been great partners along with some of our other hospitals and in, in helping us to set up places and provide testing access for city employees and those uh, who exhibit symptoms or who are not insured. A city employee that I know got tested on Monday and got the results back Tuesday and is negative. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I, I, this is exactly... Uh, what we need to happen for more people who may not even exhibit symptoms. Right. And also, one of the things my brother saw me is you couldn't be tested on Monday, be clear on Tuesday and get it on Wednesday. And that's one of the, if you don't do enough of this, if you don't know who you're interacting with, um, and if you're interacting with people who may have the virus. Yes. Um, so it's it just, it, ultimately, he said, everybody's going to get it in some, that moment has to assume they have it on some level. Um, but one of the most important things is this immunity testing and to see if people who are walking around without the symptoms are not just spreading it, but after that's over that they have, they're immune and they're not spreading it with other people. Yeah. How much of the antibody testing are you doing there? Uh, I think that that's really um, with UCSF. Uh, they're mm-hmm. really focused on that because they're they a research mm-hmm. institution. And so that, that's really important. Uh, what they are and other, I think, um, institutions like UCSF are focused on doing, of course, is a vaccine. Uh, they're focused on understanding this uh, virus and and how it works. And, and that's an important part of it as well. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, in this part, when you're thinking about treating patients with COVID-19, one of the things is this idea of, of getting better and better at treatment of it. Um, I, I guess it's mitigation, but it was, it, you, you said the AIDS crisis. There was a point where the AIDS crisis was a death sentence, and then it wasn't. It was not for everybody, that they were able to find treatments that would keep people alive, that would keep people healthier and living with AIDS, you know, that the whole idea of living with AIDS. And how, where are you all on that? Because at some point, until we get a vaccine, that's what we have to do is get better and better about treating the illness. You mean as it relates to the coronavirus? Coronavirus, Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and again, I, I probably would need to uh, rely on public health uh, yeah. experts to help us to understand where we are in, in that fight. Um, UCSF and our Department of Public Health, um, they, they work closely together and UCSF is really taking the lead on many of those initiatives. They're taking the lead on our contract tracing efforts. They're taking the lead on uh, vaccines and, and other things. So they are, they are the ones who are focused on that. And, and maybe there's an opportunity for you to have that discussion more in depth with sure. them because it's not, it's not my yeah. field of expertise. <laughs> okay, you want, but you want to keep people out of the hospitals is the whole we point. We do, is- we definitely want to keep people out of the hospitals as much as possible. All right. Uh, last part, I want to talk about this section. And then I want to talk about the economics. And the next section is homeless people. That's where you've gotten some criticism in terms of how you're dealing with the homeless. It's uh, I get that it's an enormously difficult problem in the best of times when you have an ability. San Francisco spent more money on this issue than almost any municipality, possibly the most money on on dealing with the homeless crisis. Um, and it's an it's an area that you had focused on a great deal um, before this had happened. Can you talk a little bit about how you think you're doing here and what the problems you have dealing with it are? Yeah, I think that um, what needs to be made clear is that uh, it's not simple. Uh, the problems that existed with our homeless population don't just go away because there's a pandemic. In fact, it's a lot more difficult to manage. Uh, people who struggle with mental illness, people who struggle with substance use disorder, uh, they have real challenges. Uh, You have people who um, have caseworkers and they have support 
And in the past, if they would show up intoxicated or high or what have you, it was different than now because, you know, dealing with social distancing and trying to serve a client is a whole, it's a whole nother arena. Right. And so it also now, puts the caseworker at risk. Yeah. The caseworkers, the shelter workers, the people who work with this population traditionally, the, the homeless outreach team, all of these people are now concerned about their own health and the health of their families. And so it definitely has been very difficult. So we started early on trying to thin out the shelter system uh, to move the most vulnerable population, those over 60, into hotel rooms. Uh, And we have had to increase our capacity. And what that means is we've had to call in not only disaster service workers, which every city employee is a disaster service worker, but some of our nonprofits that we basically fund uh, to come into work. And it's been difficult to get people to agree to come in to do this work. So we can't just move people into a room without making sure that, for example, at a hotel that we acquire, we have to have someone at the front desk making sure the only people coming into the hotel are people who are clients in the hotel. We have to make sure there's a site manager, there's 24-hour security, there's uh, three meals a day, there's cleaning service and how we train the hotel staff of what to do and what not to do, how we maintain social distancing in the elevators, which has been a real problem. People with their pets and other issues, folks who are not complying with wearing the mask when we provide them to them and ask them to. So it's, it's been very challenging. It's been challenging even before, but now the social distancing has made it difficult, moving people from the shelter to the hotel rooms with their stuff or with their dogs or what have you, it has to be pretty much one person at a time. And it can't be in a car. It has to be in a van where there's distance even in the vehicle. So the logistics of managing this is not as simple as, okay, we have all these hotel rooms. We're going to start moving all these people in because, you know, we're having problems with folks who are in one another's room when we're asking them not to. Uh, are getting several people at a time on the elevator when we're asking them to limit the number of people in the elevator, uh, leaving the facility uh, and basically then coming back and then kind of interacting with people when we're asked, we're just, we're okay. Like people have to leave. They want to go smoke their cigarettes. They, you know, they want to live their lives and we understand they need fresh air. But at the same time, the, the, the biggest challenge we have is getting them to comply with some of even the basic rules. Um, so it's, it's hard because, you know, there is no way that we're going to be able to uh, open a hotel and then not have the appropriate staffing levels and support necessary to support that population uh, because otherwise it makes no difference, right? Because right. And you're getting your city workers. Uh, the protect, you're not protecting your city workers. Yeah, and, and we're having a real problem with that. We really are. And, and so that's really been a little bit of the holdup because if social distancing wasn't necessary, then it wouldn't probably be as challenging. But it's challenging because of the social distancing that that's required of all of us. And then when you're trying to work with someone who refuses to keep their distance and also wear a mask and and the basic things you're asking them to do when you're helping them, uh, that is frustrating and and, 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 and difficult. So it's not to make any any excuses. To, To be clear, we are signing up for as many hotels as we can get. We've put over 750 homeless people into hotel rooms, and I don't know any other city that's done as many as we have. 
Uh, we have hotels for our healthcare workers, for our first responders and other folks. Um, we are providing the three meals a day and the services and the support. Uh, we've thinned out and emptied some of our shelter beds. And we are, we are doing what I think is the best that we can uh, because, again, there are people who have real challenges that it doesn't make it, it, it's not as simple as we can give someone a hotel room and everything is, like we, we have moved the, for example, families who in our, were in our family shelters. It was not very difficult to move the families into hotel rooms uh, and we've not need a lot of management. There's not a lot of oversight. That has been a simpler process. But uh, there are certain populations that, and certain individuals that are definitely a lot easier to work with, and they're pretty much on their own, and we don't really need to provide them with any support resources. We just need to make sure that we have cleaning service, they're fed, and, and, and they have whatever support we can offer. But, you know, there's a, a, a major um, population uh, that's just a lot more challenging. Yeah, and has been previously. All right, that's an excellent answer. All right, when we get back with Mayor Lyndon Breed of San Francisco, we're going to talk about the economics of bringing San Francisco back. It was doing amazingly well and what the tech sector can do, if anything. I don't know if she thinks that uh, when we return. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're here with San Francisco Mayor London Breed. We've been talking about a lot of things from how to deal with the homeless to uh, sheltering in place early and other things. But let's talk about uh, other workers and getting people. One of the things that San Francisco has done is been at the forefront of a lot of trends like uh, gig workers and things like that. Um, and, and obviously, uh, you have to protect the economics of, of San Francisco itself. You've issued executives order capping fees charged by delivery companies to restaurants to 15% rather than 30%. Um, you're providing paid sick leave for private sector workers impacted by COVID-19. You've done the uh, economic recovery task force. You're convening local businesses to do that. But you have hit, like the federal government just did today, the Small Business Relief Fund. Um, and so talk a little bit about the economics of returning San Francisco, because this has got to be top of mind in a city that was doing pretty well in that regard. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I launched um, a couple of weeks ago was a uh, economic recovery task force. Uh, Carmen Chu, our assessor recorder, our treasurer, Jose Cisneros, the director of the Labor Council and the director of the Chamber of Commerce, they're going to co-chair this task force with a specific agenda to 
help our uh, economy recover from this, mm-hmm. whether it's our artists, our small businesses, um, folks who work in, in various industries, in the hotels, the restaurants, the medium-sized businesses. Where do we go from here? What is our plan when we start to basically reopen the city? What is that going to look like? And with a projected $1.1 to $1.7 billion budget deficit, uh, we are definitely going to be in trouble. Uh, so how are Was we— it, what, You didn't have a deficit before, is that correct? Is we this, had a close to a little bit over $400 million budget deficit um, per, that was basically anticipated. Uh, and we uh, usually for for that sort of budget deficit, we're able to kind of manage it better than sure. what we're yeah. talking about now. Yeah, yeah, no, um, no. And so what is this going to look like? And jobs are going to be important. Um, access to to work is going to be the most critical. Making sure that people are not evicted uh, is going to be important. Uh, making sure that people have access to food and some of the basics. And so how are we as a city going to propose uh, policy changes and uh, income strategies that will help in this recovery. So this task force goal is to, yes, of course, we we have some resources now. We've done a lot of things now, not enough, but a lot for a city um, with hopefully soon to receive some federal stimulus support, hopefully someday. Um, yeah, they've been, been backed up. Yeah, it's been approved, but you know, right. people people need to be fed now. So we've um, we're doing some things now, which I can talk about. But uh, this economic recovery task force, the goal is to develop a a strategy for the future. So, for example, working with our educational institutions to provide training for a specific industry or a specific purpose or retraining for people Mm -hmm. to get them back to work, right? Right, So uh, whether it's free classes or whether it's some sort of trade or what have you, like how are we going to get our economy going? And so we're going to have to redirect our attention because there are things that may not be possible when we come back. Um, Such as? there There might be businesses that, there might be restaurants that may not come back. There could be certain coffee shops or, or, or places, uh, boutique shops and, and other small businesses that may have real trouble. Um, because, again, when you open back up, it doesn't mean everyone's going to start going back out there shopping or eating at restaurants. The, the question is, like, what can we do to cut fees for small businesses? What can we do to provide grants or, or loans? Now, for example, we established a fund where we could provide grants and up to $50,000 no interest loans with a six-year repayment plan. And we're not going to be able to help everyone based on the amount of money that we have in this fund. There's uh, public dollars that have been identified. Uh, There's private dollars that have been uh, provided to this. We want to increase it as much as possible because we want to help people now too. Uh, but what happens after this is over? Does this give you a chance? One of the things I was talking to, I think it was Mark Cuban yesterday, the idea of resetting things that had should have been cleaned out before. Um, one of the, I have a lot of friends who own restaurants in San Francisco. The, they talk about, even though it's a really wonderful thing, is the health care things they have to pay, the regulations they have to go yes. through are heavier. Is this an opportunity to fix some of those I things? I hope or do you so. Feel, Let me tell okay. you, okay. I hope so. Because the thing that drives me crazy, and even before this pandemic, 
The fact that we talk about in this city, we care about small businesses, and every time you turn around, the board is passing legislation to, and, and, and I will take responsibility for this in some cases when I served on the board too, to add a fee, to add a fee, to add a fee, and it's ridiculous. And these businesses are expected to pay all of this, and on top of the rents that we can't control, they're paying certain fee, you know, in most cases, they do pay decent wages to their employees. They are providing health care benefits to their employees. And then they're paying all these city fees for a cash register, for tables and chairs, for just things that I think are ridiculous, mm-hmm. are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They, they think they're ridiculous. I know they do. Yeah. And you know, so I have several I am friends hopeful, who went out of business over it. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that this is an opportunity that's realistic because we have already been exploring this what we've done because we've not gotten the support we need to make changes on the board level, but we've taken money and reinvested it in the businesses. So we've given them back their money in some cases. And this is before all this was going on. We've been able to identify resources that will give them a fee waiver or other things so that it kind of helps with, you know, maybe $800 here, $1,000 there. For a small business, that matters. In fact, One of the first things I did was not only delay uh, the tax payments uh, for businesses uh, until February of next year, but we also delayed the fee payments and we are exploring whether or not we can eliminate those fees entirely. Uh, And then secondly, uh, the money that the restaurants have been paying, the businesses have been paying for insurance, we've been able to give them back uh, some of that money to pay for extra week of sick leave for their employees. So we're looking at creative ways to try and give that money back to small businesses to take care of their employees. Um, So we're trying to make sure because, you know, there's also certain laws that we have to follow and we have to be very uh, careful about what we do, uh, that it fits within the scope of what we're uh, what we're 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 able to do because we collected the money for Do you see a San Francisco that's less onerous for business? I ran a business in San Francisco. It was onerous, I have to say. It was sort of like, what? You know, I am am hopeful that that's the case. I am hopeful that this gives us the opportunity to start to get rid of um, fees and all kinds of things that will help keep these businesses intact, uh, because I think it's really ridiculous. And it's it's. We can't keep saying we care about small businesses and we're not willing to cut the bureaucracy and the layers of fees that they pay to us every single year. What about develop, housing development? That's another issue, obviously, that's that was top of mind before this that you were dealing with and you were struggling with all kinds of communities and putting in homeless shelters, not just that, but actually developing, yeah. uh, removing things in the way of developing more housing for San Francisco. I, I think, I, I hope we can change that. That's probably going to be a lot harder because it has mm-hmm. been, it continues to be. Before this happened, I was basically taking a ballot measure uh, to Mm -hmm. the voters this November. I was collecting signatures because I wasn't able to get the support on the Board of Supervisors to allow uh, 100% um, affordable housing as of right um, Mm -hmm. and to allow uh, projects that exceed the affordable housing requirements to also um, do as of right. Uh, And so I wanted to get housing production moving faster and unfortunately, um, we're not going to probably be able to take that to the ballot for this November. But I am hopeful that we're going to be able to propose some policy decisions that will cut the red tape, because if we don't do that, uh, you think about it. I mean, after this is over, there are going to be more people who are homeless, more people who are struggling. 
uh, we're going to see something we've never seen before as it relates to poverty and economics and inequality and the things that are, uh, you know, really going to to change. Uh, because when we reopen, all of a sudden, people aren't going to start coming to San Francisco on on, on vacation. It's going to take some time for us to get back uh, financially to a better place. Yeah, because tourism, how, what does it represent of San Francisco's, of, of the various businesses that are critical? So tourism's number one, presumably. Uh, tourism is significant because part of it is, it's not just the, com- it's conventions and tourism, right? Mm-hmm. So right. when you think about the hotels where there's a hotel tax paid and that hotel tax money goes into our general fund, it supports our arts, it supports a lot of things. Uh, when you think about the restaurants, Um, And you think about all of the different shopping businesses, the retail, the convention fees, everything that is is done in this city has the the revenue we generate has a lot to do with our our tourism industry. And it is going to be hit hard and it's going to take some time to recover from that. All right. Lastly, I want to talk about tech. What can the tech industry do? There's been struggles between the mayor of San Francisco and tech, and then sometimes too much cooperation, and then moving out, moving in, and wanting special dispensation, and you know, jacking up rents, all kinds of, you know, it's been a continuing the buses. There's not there's so many issues around tech. What can tech do? What would you like to see from the tech industry, which well, is at the center of Well, first of San all, I've, I've reached out to a lot of the folks in the tech industry, and mm-hmm. a lot of them have made uh, contributions to our Give to SF. Uh, fund, which is mm-hmm. a public-private partnership to provide support for food insecurity, for housing, and for small businesses. Uh, and I really want to appreciate Mark Benioff and the work that Salesforce continues to do to not only support San Francisco, but he's supporting the whole country with he PPE. Is. And I mean, I'd like to see um, you know the tech industry not only take care of their employees, because uh, I think that's important to make sure that we don't have more unemployed people than necessary, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but I'd like to see them do more uh, contributions and using some more of their technology and tools. Like, um, I- I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the company, but they created the app that's going to allow us to do the contract tracing. So mm-hmm. like, we're seeing a lot of philanthropic support with computers to our public schools. We're seeing the apps that are being created that are helpful to us in order to do our jobs. So just realizing what tools they have at their disposals and giving back by providing that as a resource, taking care of their employees and making contributions to the things that will help residents of this city that are less fortunate. Do you think they get that they live in San Francisco? I mean, have you been able, you know, one of the things is they sort of live above in these beautiful offices with their cafeterias and everything else. And it sometimes feels they don't feel like they live, they are a part of San Francisco. Yeah. And in the past, other other things like banks had been part of the, the social fabric. Yeah, I think that because they're more, probably more global, um, mm-hmm. it, it seems a little different. Like they have workforces all over the world. Uh, and I also think that these are people who, are newly wealthy people and Mm -hmm. have never probably understood uh, the philanthropic uh, needs or or, uh, responsibilities of those who are are in the wealth category. Um, The reason why I think Mark Benioff is a lot different, I mean, first of all, he's a native San Franciscan, several generations. Um, His family has a real long history here. And he grew up in in this world and understands 
uh, the need to also give back and to use your wealth to support others. And so you have this kind of like a lot of the old school, uh, not that he's like an older person, but like a lot of the old school wealthy folks who really, it's a part of the fabric of who they are, like the Gettys (laughs) and Warren Hellman and folks who have been institutions in in the giving world. Uh, And uh, I think that uh, with the tech world, because these are people who are are newly established wealthy people and they have a different kind of personality in comparison to maybe folks who have developed their money in the ways that some of these folks have. And, And they, I don't know if they see a connection between their wealth and their responsibility to their fellow citizens. Some do. And some are very generous and some try and uh, they're trying to be active and engage. Um, you know, Jeff Lawson at Twilio, he's been incredible uh, with not only contributions, but incorporating uh, volunteerism and work from his employees. So I think part of what I'd like to see is more of uh, the giving and the support and the volunteerism, the giving back to be incorporated in the work that they do. And I think that would make a real difference in the relationships between tech and uh, people uh, in San Francisco. Okay, last question. When you're thinking of when this is over, do you have anything in your mind? What is your wish? What is your, if you had a crystal ball? Uh, In terms of thinking when this will be over? Mm -hmm. Well, first I'll say it's not gonna be really over until we have a vaccine um, Mm -hmm. because there's still a possibility if it, as long as this is out there, uh, there's still a possibility of people being infected. So it's going to change our lives as we know it in terms of how we interact with one another. Uh, but I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, sometime soon we can come out of this, uh, you know, in the next month or two, uh, and we're able to kind of get back to some level of living our lives. I want to go to a restaurant. I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to hang out with my friends. Yeah, yeah. I want to go get my hair done. <laughs> so I want us, I'm, I'm hoping uh, we can get back to that point with implementing new policies around how we are there. And uh, I, I'm not sure when that's going to be, but uh, this is going to change life as we know it. All right. And you yourself, what about for your life? Like I said, I, I don't want much. I just, I want to go get my nails done. I want to go get my hair done. I want to massage. I want to go eat at a restaurant with my friends. I want to go wine tasting in Napa. Like, I don't want much. I just want to go and relax and enjoy myself and maybe have a nice vacation. Let me ask one more question. I think I'm coming in kind of deep on your thing. That's okay. I don't care. Um, Do you want to run for higher office? I mean, you've gotten a lot of attention. A lot of women have been run, doing very well with the cities, they, countries they've been running. I, we can get into that on a whole nother topic. But do you want to run for higher office, getting this attention you've gotten for this? Well, I, I will say that uh, I never expected to be mayor. Um, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe when I won for the Board of Supervisors. And I didn't realize that being an elected official would even be in my life because of where I came from, the challenges with my background. And I'm a very spiritual person, so part of what I rely on is something feels right. And the fact is, um, right now, I I love being mayor of the city that I was born and raised in, and I feel like there's no better job than being mayor. Um, And so I'm not sure what the future holds for me in the political life, but it's always going to be centered around public service. So we'll see. 
Well, that's a yes, I think. Anyway, all right. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Mayor Breed. I really appreciate it and continue doing the really great work you're doing. I know it's uh, you get it from all sides, but I do think uh, it's one of the bright spots in uh, in what's been happening thank in terms you. of public leadership. Again, thank you so much, Mayor Breed, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Mayor Breed, where can people find you online or anything they need to know about San Francisco? Oh, they can visit uh, sfgov.org or they can call 311, uh, the residents of San Francisco, if you're looking for resources or support or help. Um, you can also email Mayor London Breed at sfgov.org. And on Twitter? At London Breed. At London Breed. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.